Podcast. My name is Brett Arnold at Brett Redacted on Twitter. And not only am I here with your esteemed co-host Jesse Hassinger at Rock Marooned on Twitter, I am also here with uh, the Internet's Elvira or <laughs> the Internet's uh, Svenguli. I don't have any other horror host references here. Uh, Hoff Matthews is here, the host of Hoff's Public Domain Horror Fest, a weekly series that you can now watch on YouTube in which uh, Hoff hosts a horror screening of a public domain film. So basically something from like before, what, 1960-something? What's the cutoff there, Hoff? There's some from the 1970s, but that's about as recent as they get. Right on. And before the public domain horror fest, you were just hosting these uh, at like comedy clubs in New York, right? Yeah, mainly at Cantina Royal in uh, Williamsburg, which has now uh, unfortunately closed. But yeah, we used used to do it as uh, live physical screenings, and they didn't have to be in the public domain then because we weren't online and didn't have these uh, AI systems flagging us. But I did pay for the rights, I will say that. Did you really? I did, yes. I I licensed the screening. That's so funny because, you know, Doug Benson, who tours with, uh, you know, interrupting movies and hosting events like that, he his workaround is just to wink wink and nudge whatever like the title's going to be and just not um, announce it officially and that's how for years he has escaped um any sort of culpability. I remember I went to a Oscar's watch party and he had to call it like award show watch season or like <laughs> something that you know wouldn't get him flagged. But you I think you're a genius for figuring out that you know you can basically host these watch parties on Twitch or YouTube and as long as it's in the public domain, you like literally you don't have to have a second screen. You're basically doing it all as a one screen experience. Yes. Um, I, you know, the disadvantage is it's obviously a pretty limited pool of movies that you can pull from. So we will run out eventually. But there are some good ones in there. And I was for a while when the pandemic started trying to do like online watch parties using, you know, the apps like Scener and Cast and all that. But it's just such a big barrier to audiences to ask them to like install something else on their computer for them to be able to watch so this was uh, a nice workaround for that yes uh thank you so much for having me we watched uh, little shop of horrors last week and you can find that on youtube type in hoff's horror fest or hoff's public domain horror fest you'll find it there i'm sure jesse what's going on in your world well, now I'm making plans to citizens arrest uh, Doug. Uh, what's his face? <laughs> Doug Benson. Yes, he's the in next breach. Time I see him, Benson's going down. I'm just going to tackle him. I don't care about the pandemic. He's going under arrest for that copyright violation. That's it. That's all you um, got on your plate. Yeah, <laughs> I respect it. I appreciate that. 
Yeah, we, we both do. We both, uh, we're both big fans of films here. We're all fans of films. Uh, speaking of films, we're here to talk about Halloween 2, the 1981 film, not the Rob Zombie uh, 20... Oh, Jesus Christ, I have no idea. 2010? 2009, I think. 2009? Yeah, okay. Yeah, 2009. Uh, we're not talking about that one, which uh, thankfully, because I am not prepared, I don't even know what year it came out. But we're here to talk about Rick Rosenthal's directorial debut, Halloween 2, written and produced by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill again of the original film. Uh, Dean Cundy Cundy of the original, uh, the DP of the original, came back. He actually ended up turning down (laughs) the job on Poltergeist (laughs) to do this movie, which I thought was funny because he's like, yeah, my buddy uh, Steven Spielberg offered me a gig and I had to say... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, uh, they're making this Halloween 2 thing, and I feel like i obligated to do it. Uh, so we're talking about... Hall- dance with the one that brung you. Yeah, exactly. The man <laughs> understands right. it. Uh, so we're here to talk about Halloween 2, a movie that I grew up watching on cable a lot, so I have uh, definitely a level of nostalgia for it. I'm excited to hear about Jesse and Hoff's experiences with the movie. I'm pretty sure Jesse had seen it previously, and it's not new to him. Yes, that is correct. I had seen it uh, in the run-up to David Gordon Green's Halloween. I rewatched the original and watched a couple of the sequels. I didn't make it all the way through, but I did get, <laughs> I did make it all the way through Halloween too. So this was my second time watching this movie. Thank you, Cinemax Free Trial. Right on. And Hoff, I'm assuming this is. Did you watch it again, or do you just running on the memory of you <laughs> seeing it a million times? I did watch it again. I don't know if I needed to, because, yeah, I have seen it many times over. But, yes, I did watch it within the last couple of days. Right on. And it was your letterbox review that pointed out the... I wasn't going to watch the TV version, because I watched the regular theatrical cut or whatever it is with... Like, I watched it by itself, and then I watched it with two commentaries, and then I watched the documentary. So I felt like I didn't need to watch the TV cut, but your review was like, you know... It's fun to watch a movie, you know, a horror movie like this in that format where it's like, you know, cut for TV and literally black bars on the sides. And the movie is different. So I ended up watching that cut before uh, we potted today. So I've seen Halloween 2 four to- uh, three and a half times, I'd say, this week. And before this week, I'd seen it probably a dozen times. And I actually own... This is one of those movies that I own so many copies of for some reason. Like, there's a 2011 DVD or Blu-ray that I got that I specifically bought because it has, like, this really good documentary as a supplemental feature on it, the Terror in the Isles documentary that you can't really get anywhere else, apparently, at this point. So I have that version that I got on Amazon for, like, 10 bucks at some point. And the reason I mentioned that I got it for 10 bucks is because I already owned it, I'm pretty sure, in a different format. And then recently, listeners of the show will know I spent a fortune on eBay to get the 15-disc out-of-print Shout Factory Halloween box set. So now I have that version, and that's what I watched this time, which included all those new commentaries and the TV cut. So uh, I know Joe and I talked about Halloween 2 five years ago or whatever it was, but I feel, ooh, boy am I equipped to talk about it today uh, (laughs) with so much more knowledge than I've ever had. I feel like super enlightened uh, so before we get to Halloween 2, which I'm so excited to talk about, we'll do the usual bits and pieces. And Jesse, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't we tease we were going to talk about something last week and we didn't talk about it? Like a oh, Shudder we movie gonna, or yeah, something? Yeah, we were going to talk about Scare Me, I think. Okay, cool. Toph, did you happen to watch Scare Me yet? 
I have not seen Scare Me. Okay, cool. Well, maybe we'll get to it. Maybe we won't. We'll see. Keep you on the edge of your toes. Edge of your toes? That's not an expression. <laughs> Keeping everybody like on the edge of their toes. Um, I just watched The Witches, which in that movie, they don't have toes. They have little block feet. So maybe that's where my head was. <laughs> anyway, uh, bits and pieces segment starting now. Resident Evil feature film reboot. We'll go back to scary roots of the first two games. And the cast has been announced. Was it ever not following their scary roots? What, like, at what point? I guess they pivoted I, I, to, like, action. Is that what they're saying? Yeah, I think the idea is that it's kind of, it's not as much of a zombie series as it is an action series with zombies, like, I guess. But it's still, you know, it's still violent and stuff. So would you say this isn't my grandfather's Resident Evil? <laughs> <laughs> your, your grandfather famously loved Resident Evil. <laughs> yeah, my late grandfather, who <laughs> probably wasn't alive for any of it, to be honest with you. Um, Constantine Film has set in motion a new adaptation to add to the ever-expanding Resident Evil movie franchise. Uh, Writer-director Johannes Roberts said Tuesday that, that they've, uh, he's conceived an original or an official origin story adaptation with faithful ties to Capcom's classic survival horror games. The story is set in 1998, on a fateful night in Raccoon City. Starring in the roles of the iconic game characters will be Maze Runners, Kaya Scodelario. Is that the girl? Okay. Was, was she in uh, Crawl? Is that where she's yes. from? Fuck yeah, she was. She was in Crawl and also like Pirates of the Caribbean 5, I think. But Crawl, subtitle. more important. Surrender the subtitle for Pirates 5. Day. You must know it. I just derailed the show to make you yell the title of Pirates 5. <laughs> Dude. Wait, oh, sorry, which title? Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 5. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, Dead Man Tell No Tales, I think. Mm, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was totally worth it. Sorry. No, uh, I, was just, I went into a Crawl fugue because I fucking love that movie, so I was just really excited about her. I liked her from Crawl, and she was also on TV's Skins, I think, the the, the English version. The MTV no version Skins. of Skins? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So Kaya Kaya is playing Claire Redfeld alongside Hannah John Kamen, of apparently Ant-Man on the Wasp fame. I'm not familiar. Maybe yes. that, is she like who is she in Ant-Man on the Wasp? Do you she's know? She's the um she's the chick who's like the ghost the ghosty chick with the suit. Um she's like a secondary bad guy who's not really that bad. Ooh. <laughs> she like does the kind of I like that. Uh, she like does the kind of um Ghosts in the Matrix reloaded kind of moves. Anyway, she's cool. <laughs> okay. Uh, Robbie Amell as Chris Redfield. Tom Hopper as Albert Wesker. Avon Jogia as Leon S. Kennedy. And Neil McDonough as William Birkin. These people are honestly more recognizable than their names suggest, a few of them. Like, I didn't really know who they were by name, but I do by face. So if that's helpful, go to Deadline. Take a look at the little collage they made. Um... Uh, Johannes Roberts, though, the director, I'm a fan of. He did 47 Meters Down, uh, 47 Meters Down 2, 48 Meters Down. Just kidding. It was called <laughs> It was called something stupider, like 48 Meters Down Uncaged, I believe. But he, what did he do before that? He did something cool before that, uh, but it's, it's escaping me. But I'm, I'm a fan of him, is my point. And uh, this movie, you know, Paul W.S. Anderson wrote and directed the previous six of these, which were led by his ex-wife current actual wife mia jovovich i don't really i believe they're still married because they're uh, they're doing another they're doing monster hunter together oh my goodness okay so they're thriving good for them yeah good for them uh it's among the highest grossing film series has ever based on a video game they've made a hundred uh, 1.2 billion at the box office 
And Deadline recently also broke the news of a Resident Evil series adaptation, which is set up in Netflix. So, to recap, movie coming out. Uh, oh, the movie I was thinking of that he directed recently was uh, The Strangers 2, Johannes Roberts did, which was decent. It was okay. Um, so there's a TV show coming to Netflix. There's a movie coming to, quote-unquote, or I'm going to say theaters, but I don't know if that is a, is a thing anymore. Uh, and there's also Resident Evil 8 Village, the video game, coming out on next-gen consoles next year. So it's a good time to be a Resident Evil fan. Uh, Hoff, are you particularly into these movies or games at all? I'm not. I've, I've never been that big of a gamer. I'm, I just started on uh, Deadly Premonition on Switch recently. That's like as close as I've gotten to having any experience with Resident Evil. Um, so I, I don't have much to add on that, I'm afraid. Have you seen, because for me, I saw the movie, the first one. I remember, <laughs> this is such a weird memory. My friend's mom took us to the mall and like went to like a Sam Goody and she let us buy one thing. And uh, I got Resident <laughs> Evil fresh to DVD, which at a Sam Goody probably cost like $45 or something absurd. But like, I remember vividly thinking it was like, a you know, it was 2002. So I was like uh, 11 or 12 and thought it was really cool at the time. And honestly, the first one holds up in a, the, I don't know, I don't know how to just say it holds up. It holds up in like a early aught sci-fi type of way. Have you seen that one? <laughs> I have. I think I had a similar experience. As Did your friend's you. mom buy it for you at a Sam Goody? <laughs> Not that specific, but I think I watched it on DVD at a friend's house. I think it was that kind of movie, but it was a long time ago. I don't remember it that well. I think George Romero was attached at one point to supposedly uh, make the film adaptation uh, before Paul W.S. Anderson ended up stepping in, which would have been cool. It would have been very cool. Jesse, have you seen the first? You've seen them all? I love the, I mean, like, I, none of them are great, but I collectively love the Resident Evil movies. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Three, which is directed by Russell Mulcahy, who did Highlander. Uh, I like Four, which I think is when Paul W.S. Anderson comes back. I mean, they, they Jesse, vary. Jesse, I'm going to need I'm, some subtitles from you. <laughs> some subtitles? Oh, for what? What do you mean? Uh, Resident Evil 3, is it Afterlife? Oh. Oh no! Yeah, I was gonna say three is because I don't. I extinction. still don't know the actual. Subject. I think it's extinction. Uh, three is extinction. Four is afterlife. I don't remember what five is. One of them's uh, Nemesis, right? Was that five? No, Nemesis. I think, that's a, I think that's a game. I don't say ever. <laughs> yeah, I think Nemesis. it's a game. Two. I, uh, Two I owned on DVD also. Uh, friend's mom didn't buy it. This is when is I was. Apocalypse. Two is Apocalypse. And I bought it because Mike Epps was in it. And I thought he was really <laughs> funny. And I'm pretty sure Mike Epps is like yelling at a big bad video game character. Like yeah, screaming yeah, like obscenities yeah. at him. Like it's like a bit. I mean, I, I, had to, I was writing a script for like a YouTube video that, was, that touched upon some apocalyptic movies that included Resident Evil. Uh, so I was moved to buy the entire series on DVD, uh, regular definition. Mm. I believe if anyone wants to catch up, I feel like you can do it for like $12. You can get the whole. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, the Blu-ray set I recently picked up because it was like 16 or 17 bucks. And I think that's only because there's a 4K edition of that coming out <laughs> in November. So we're all going to have to throw out all the previous editions we have and go buy the new ones because they're going to stop working. Right. That's what happens. That's right. Um, we have some more movie release date changes. Uh, everyone was super psyched for Adam Robitel's uh, Escape Room 2, which uh, we joked about. We're not even joke about. But we talked about on this pod how it had a strange release date. I'm pretty sure it was like December 30th, 
Yes. 2020 initially. And now the sequel has been delayed to an undisclosed time in 2021. Which kind of everything is getting banished to that to that realm. We also have The Matrix 4, which was planned for April 2022, which is now actually earlier, December 22, 2021, which is exciting, which I believe that movie is actually filming now again. Uh, the Batman, which is also filming now, moved from October 2021 to March 2022. I believe that was because... Or I don't know. Uh, Dune was also pushed to October first, twenty twenty one, a full year. Holy shit! There's no movies. Movies are gone. What do you guys think about the fact that movies are gone? I mean, it's just frustrating to me that I, I get why they tried to play the short game and just push everything by a few weeks over and over and over again. And to the vast majority of the population who doesn't follow this shit, nobody cares. Really, you know, like. Mm. Uh, people maybe were faintly aware that Wonder Woman 2 was supposed to come out in the summer and now it's maybe yeah, coming out of Christmas. Because their not. bags of Doritos said so. Yeah, exactly. I got, I got some of those Doritos. They were delicious. They just tasted just like Doritos. Um, <laughs> but I, it's, a, it's for someone who follows this stuff, it is wearisome just watching as everything moves out and out and out. And it does seem, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it kind of does seem right. Like they should have just been like, okay, everything's just out of 2020 and we'll see you in 2021. Um, but instead, they sort of, you know, it's like everything with the pandemic. It's like in March, we were thinking, oh, maybe by summer things will be better. And now we're thinking, well, maybe in 2021 at some point, maybe in the summer of 2021, we'll watch a big movie again. Hoff, do you mind movies going to VOD? Do you mind movies pushing themselves a year out? What, what's your take? I don't mind. I'm a homebody. I'm perfectly happy to sit on my couch and watch the movies from there. So would you um, have been happier if every movie that was supposed to come in theaters went on PVOD for like 20, 30 bucks, would you have rented them? Uh, I don't know if I would have rented them necessarily, but like, oh, uh, I don't go too far. I don't love movies that much. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we should just accept our fates and that, uh, things are not going to ever turn out, you know, better than we're hoping they will. Uh, so it, <laughs> yeah. it's good that that seems like that's the direction that they're heading in. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm pretty, bu- I, I mean, I will say I'm glad that I trekked out to see, unhinged last week because who knows when we'll have the chance to experience that on the big screen again and you need to see russell crowe on the big screen i don't think he fits on the home video edition he must be bursting out they have to add a separate aspect ratio to fit russell crowe in the frame at home he's he's too hinged at home if you yeah. watch it on tv or he can happen to anyone i've been told repeatedly <laughs> um another movie that moved uh fans of the show are probably psyched about it uh a movie that I think was made probably based on like a GoFundMe campaign, Ter- Terrifier 2. It was supposed to be out at the end of the month, but due to COVID, it's going to be delayed until early 2021. Uh, you'll have to wait to see Art the Clown dismember people in horrifying ways a little longer, but we're looking forward to it. And I mentioned The Witches earlier, and I did watch The Witches because it's on Netflix and because Robert Zemeckis' The Witches, starring Anne Hathaway, it was announced we'll be going straight to HBO Max on October 22nd. So let's recap Robert Zemeckis' life as of late. He's got Welcome to Marwin, huge hit. <laughs> and then we get The Witches uh, relegated to HBO. What do we think, Jesse? I mean, so I love Zemeckis. I'm a big Zemeckis guy, though. Welcome to Marwin is the pits. Um, and I'm also a big, I love The Witches, the book, and I like the movie pretty well, though it was an early experience for me as a child 
grousing that they changed something that's ultimately kind of minor about the book. Ooh, please so tell me. Mad. Um, but what was I mean, the I thing they like, changed? What's that? What was the thing they changed in the in the oh. movie? Uh, this is spoilers, I guess, for a thirty-year-old movie. In the movie, you you just see you watch this, you know yes. that like random ass good witch changes the boy from a mouse back into a boy at the end of the movie. Yeah, and he's naked at the time, and it's very weird. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, in the book, he stays a mouse and is like estimated based on a mouse's lifespan to die around the same time as his grandma, um, <laughs> which is bleak. That but is some roll doll shit. I love it. Yes, yes. It's it's just like the idea of a good witch who like undoes the bad witch's magic is like not in the roll doll. It also doesn't fit that movie at all because that movie is so terrifying and scary. And one of the reasons I watched it again was to like convince myself it existed. It wasn't like a fever dream I had as a kid because it's <laughs> yeah, so, it's, well, it's it very, has such it's scary imagery to the book, which is very, very scary. Um, it's like four. I feel like I'm, I think my fourth grade or third grade teacher read it to me, uh, or maybe, maybe second grade as young as second grade, but it's, I remember being like, you know, on, as you say, on the edge of your toes, uh, as a second <laughs> grader, whatever, being very terrified by the, by the whole enterprise, the movie going to HBO max, I feel like it's going to, people are going to assume that it's bad for that reason. But I have to assume, like, you look at all these like, release date shuffles they've done with Warner Brothers, and HBO Max is not doing that well. So I feel like some of it's just, like, they're getting a backlog at this point. You know, they've got, like, yeah. a bunch of movies that are done or close to done or can be finished, you know, without shooting. Um, and even some movies that are back in production. And they can't just delay everything three years or whatever. <laughs> so I feel like The Witches, it was, like, it's a, it's a you know, spooky-type movie. So it's either this Halloween or next Halloween. So why not just like give HBO Max like a high profile title? Um, but who knows? Maybe it's also a disaster. I don't know. But Zemeckis, you know, like the vast majority of his non-Marwin movies, I would say, are good. So I think yeah. the odds are in his favor. Uh, it would be great yeah. if they like held everything and then just like had to put out all their releases as like Grindhouse style double features. <laughs> yes. like, you have to buy a ticket to like The Witches and Wonder Woman 1984 at the same time, <laughs> a package deal. I wouldn't Just be mad at that. Every week, a big movie every yeah. week for two years. <laughs> um, Jesse, tell me, or maybe Hoff can tell me too. But that reminds me of when it was—I want to say it was Spider-Man Two and Men in Black Two when yes. they made that. Uh, it must be the same studio. It must have been Sony being like, "Yeah, it was it definitely was like Spider-Man. a buy one ticket for both type thing." It was Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man, and Men in Black Two kind of came back to theaters at the end of the summer for a double feature. Hell yeah. Um, yeah, that was. The, we I, love a I nationally like was, advertised um, sneak preview or double feature in my house. Yeah, it was basically I went to all go to the go to the drive-in at a, at your movie theater. <laughs> yeah, because that's the kind of thing they show at the drive-in. And Hoff's suggestion, I like it. Bring it back. All these movies are going to get delayed. Oh, by the way, Fast and Furious got delayed again. I don't know if I mentioned that last week. Um, but yeah, it, there's really going to be like 2021, 2022. There's going to be so many movies because all of 2020 movies are all backed up in there. Um, I'm amazed that a lot of them have no, nothing's leaked. There's none. There's no like James Bond leak. There's no Wonder Woman leak, despite the fact that the the chips and the Seven Eleven cups all came out. <laughs> there's no leak of the movie. It's kind of impressive, actually. Yeah, true. Uh, I don't know if I have any more news, and um, I don't want to talk about Scare Me. If uh, I guess we could talk about Scare Me on Shutter for a minute and. And uh, recommend it or not for Hoff. Hoff is the audience surrogate here. Yes, <laughs> wonderful. Um, scare me. Talk about it, Jesse. 
Yeah, so this is a straight to shutter motion picture um, from, I believe, the guy's name. His last name is Ruben. Now yeah, his name is Josh name. Ruben. Uh, it's Josh, a directorial debut. Josh Ruben. And he stars yes. as well. And he stars in it. He uh, opposite Aya Cash, from, who I know as wonderful from You're the Worst and fine on the OK show, The Boys. Um, but it seems to be very popular. Hmm. Uh, it seems like it, she's a girl. This is interesting development. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so they, yeah, there, there are two writers. Wyatt Cash plays a very successful one, and uh, a successful writer, and Josh Rubin plays a aspiring, barely aspiring writer who are stuck in a cabin together overnight, and they decide to tell each other scary stories to freak each other out. What's interesting about it is that it seems like the framing device for like an anthology movie where you're going to see the different stories that they yes. tell, and that's going to be. But they don't do that. You're actually with the characters as they tell these stories, and the, it, the camera doesn't really leave. There's like some augmented sound effects and, and lighting and stuff, but the camera doesn't leave the room. You're just really listening and watching as they tell their competing scary stories. And they're fairly realistic scary stories in terms of stuff that's improvised, in that they're not always that good. Um, <laughs> or like they're not like perfectly rendered, you know, jewel box uh, anthology pieces. Uh, it's sort of it's sort of a comedy, sort of a horror movie. It kind of takes you know takes a turn that maybe halfway through you could expect, but you wouldn't necessarily expect from the, the jump. I mean, I mostly liked it. I think me too. Like, for the kind of movie it is, it is a and I loathe to say this about too too many movies, but it's way too long. Like this is like a, this is a perfect seventy five minute movie. And yeah, if like, I recall, it's like an hour forty five or something obscene. Yeah, it just they let everything play out. I mean, you really are just watching them like vamp at some point as they're thinking of these stories and it's sort of fun but you're also sort of like all right well this is this is my time huh yeah. you guys are just gonna like <laughs> this is a three star movie as is there's a 90 minute cut somewhere that's like a three and a half four star version i'm convinced <laughs> like because this movie is like my immense love for Aya Cash facing off against my extreme disdain for meta horror comedy because <laughs> it's pretty much i wrote this in january this is pretty funny to read now I said this is pretty much the epitome of a horror comedy that will play festivals, garner pretty good reviews, and eventually wind up on Shudder with little fanfare. <laughs> so I think I nailed that. But then I also said it's a bit, that's also a bit reductive. It's mostly clever, very cl or mostly impressive and very clever. And it goes to show you don't need any money to make something worth a damn, even if it fizzles out a little by the third act. The camera work and sound design are both impressive, and the fact that the movie works at all is a testament to the craft on display. I look forward to somebody giving this guy a bigger budget one day. And I think that Aya Cash is really great. And they're both really good. So I yeah. also liked it with reservations, I guess. Yes. So definitely worth watching on Shudder. Worth the admission price on Shudder, which is <laughs> exactly. $5 a month or something. Uh, Scare Me is good. Did you watch anything else uh, in the past week or two? I did watch a horror -y thing called, I keep forgetting the name, Books of Blood. Oh, Books is it the Blood. new Hulu Clive Barker thing? Yes. Tell me I about it. That. I did not watch um, it. My review will appear on the website Polygon sometime soon, probably like tomorrow or something. It's very weird because it's actually, it's like an interesting pairing with Scare Me because it also feels like an anthology project. And I, I understand that this was at some point pitched as a possible TV show. Um, so it's this weird middle ground where it's like a TV movie, even though those TV movies as such don't really exist oh, anymore. Oh, they do exist. They're called the Blumhouse Into the Dark franchise. That's <laughs> yeah, what TV exactly. movies it's, have become. It, it, it's, well, it's this weird thing where, like, so they do those now instead of doing, like, 
Tales from the Crypt style half hour anthology things. And this one is kind of in between the two because the they're the the three or I would say two and a half, two and a quarter stories that they cover here are longer than like a half an hour Tales from the Crypt. Not quite feature length, but they are sort of intertwined eventually. So it kind of weirdly comes off like a long pilot or a short season or a weird movie. It's just like, is all of these things not quite great at, at being any of those? Um, and it you know, mostly didn't super work for me. The first segment, which is kind of the longest one, stars Britt Robertson, and I that one is the most successful for me. And I don't believe it's actually based on a Barker story. I... Uh, I think the other story, other major story in it, starring Anna Friel, is from is like the title story from the the uh, Books of Blood collections, mm. and the other one I think they ginned up for this one because a lot of those stories have been adapted from for other movies. Right. <laughs> yeah, the Clive Barker so, wells run dry. He's not like Stephen King where he has like an infinite amount yeah. of stuff and he's just still he's not sitting in a closet somewhere writing stuff every three minutes. You know exactly. This, so this stuff, I don't know, like the Brit Robertson story in this, I, I kind of irrationally enjoy her, even though I'm not sure if she's ever been in a good movie, but including this one. Uh, there's some creepy moments in it, some cool imagery, but ultimately, and the, the second story didn't 100% work for me, and ultimately it's kind of a, like, eh, you know, I, I wasn't bored during it, but it, it does occupy this weird in-between place where if you want to watch like a TV show anthology, you could find one of those. Or if you really want to watch a good horror movie, this should be way down your list. But if you want to watch a weird hybrid of the two, <laughs> that seems like it's a pilot for a show that's never going to happen, um, then it's here. Now that's, <laughs> on- now that's an endorsement. I like that. Um, so I want to do a quick plug for something called Nightstream. It is a entirely virtual horror fest. This is the first time it's ever being done. It is from the people who did the Brooklyn Horror Fest and um, the Overlook Film Festival. And I'm plugging it because, A, I got a press pass and I would love to plug it. And it's, it is my damn duty to do so. But also because I usually shit talk these things. But I've watched four screeners so far. And usually it'd be 0 for 4 at a horror festival. And they'd be all bad. Uh, three out of four were really good. So I want to recommend you guys take a look at the films. And uh, you can buy your own tickets you buy a badge and get access to all of them i think you can buy individual screenings um i don't know what the embargoes are so i don't want to talk out of turn but i will just recommend one off the top of my head that i know no one will be mad at me for recommending there's a movie called anything for jackson i thought that was great a great horror movie and there's a sci-fi movie called lapsus that's also really good those are the two i watched that i liked and here's my bonus recommendation to avoid. <laughs> I did not like Come True. I'm sorry. Don't recommend Come True. This was an advertisement for Nightstream. You can get your tickets at uh, nightstream.org. And uh, with that, I want to give a quick plug to our Patreon uh, page, patreon.com slash newflashpodcast, where you can listen to our bonus episodes. There's like 25 of them, including our most recent one where we talk about Repossessed, the Leslie <laughs> Nielsen parody movie of Exorcist which uh, Jesse provides like a masterclass in parody movies and whatnot. It's a great episode. Subscribe on Patreon. You can unlock all that. And with that, I think it's time to talk about the main event, uh, Rick Rosenthal's Halloween 2. Before I go into how this movie was conceived and whatnot, I would love to know your guys' personal history. Jesse, we heard a little bit about you already. You said you watched it for the first time recently uh, in... 
preparation for the 2018 David Gordon Green Halloween movie. Uh, Hoff, when did you first see it? Do you remember? Well, it's funny. I think you brought up watching it on cable. And my fondest memory of this movie is like watching the first 10 minutes or so on AMC uh, after coming back from trick or treating as a kid and like eating my candy while watching the beginning of this film, which I think is like the best way to experience it. I couldn't um, agree more. That is kind of the same energy that I uh, <laughs> I think of when I think of this movie. And uh, I love that the movie includes a kid getting uh, eating razor blade filled candy in it. Uh, yes, they make sure to throw that in there. They make sure to throw that in because it's like the height of like this hollow. Like, I don't even know if it was the height of it, but there's this like paranoia around Halloween. And like, I always heard growing up that you got to be careful for razor blades in your candy and all this other shit. And um, I love that the movie brought that into it. I love that you're sitting there eating candy watching it. <laughs> yeah. And then I think I saw the full thing finally, like the morning after a Halloween sleepover at a friend's house or something like that. Amazing. And Jesse, yeah. so for you, it was really just this uh, 2018 when you first saw it. Yeah, it was pretty divorced from like my fun Halloween rituals. Unfortunately, uh, it was pretty much just a catch up watch. Right on. Um, so talking about this movie, uh, what Rick Rosenthal says he responded to was the idea that somehow Halloween 2 could follow a moment later so it would feel like an actual continuation of Halloween. Um, the idea uh, occurred to the producer, obviously, after the receipts started rolling in. Uh, Irwin Yablons, the seeds were planted quickly after its success. Tommy Lee Wallace, the production designer on the first movie, um, says nobody on the team was excited to do a sequel because like, they felt they all left it out on the court, so to speak, for the first movie, and they all you know, really put it all out there and like, they had nothing more to say. Um, and Carpenter wanted to do a different movie of his follow-up, and he didn't want to repeat himself by doing Halloween 2. So, and a sequel just wasn't like an everyday concept at this time, so like, it, it didn't happen right away. Remember that the movie came out in 78, and the sequel didn't come out until 81, which is like a huge amount of time in those days, especially when you consider that like they rushed out all these sequels to other stuff like frozen Friday 13th on its second one by this point. And uh, there's a bunch of other stuff that already had started. Um, so Irwin said to car, this is according to Irwin Yablons on a documentary. He said, sure, John, let's do the, uh, the fog first. And then we'll talk about Halloween too. So Irwin says he left for con film festival where he sat next to his old friend from Paramount, Bob Rainey, who is now the president of Avco Embassy. And he basically says he talked to Bob Rainey about John Carpenter, and then Bob went and talked to Carpenter after that conversation and stole the fog from him. <laughs> uh, so basically, yeah. Irwin says, Irwin sued them both, uh, and they ended up settling the case, and it was agreed that basically Bob Rainey's embassy could make the fog, but um, they got, or Irwin got Halloween too. So it was the evident that the powers that be were in a position to do so were going to make it. So the train was leaving the station and John Carpenter was like, you know, it's underwhelming, but we're going to just have to do it so we can get our payday and, you know, not let anybody else do it. And Tommy Lee Wallace was considered to direct. And by considered, I mean, John Carpenter picked him to direct, but he fucking hated the script and uh, he didn't want, want anything to do with it, to be honest with you. Um, and then Irwin also, Irwin Yablons also didn't like the script. He called it pedestrian and predictable, uh, pedestrian and predictable. And he said it's professional enough, but like it abandoned the essence of the character. It felt like everything that Halloween one was not the antithesis where Halloween got it 
you know, got a, got away with like suggestion, uh, suggestions and shadows and old school technique. This movie, they say, is like summed up by the image of the hypodermic needle in the eyeball. Like it's very <laughs> just all they just go all in on the kills. And like it's a typical slasher movie or like a splatter movie, even where it's like more focused on the gore. And it's so funny that people think of Halloween as this gory movie, because when they think of a gory slasher movie, they probably are honestly thinking of this one more so than the first one, where the first one does cut away before you see a lot of the stuff. Um, yeah, or Friday the 13th, which everyone confuses with Halloween anyway. John's argument for like why he did the movie or agreed to do it. He's like with imitators like Friday the 13th coming, like there was inflation in terms of violence and gore and Carpenter felt boxed in. Like he couldn't do the same thing that Halloween did, <clears throat> you know, without with like the implied violence. So they basically, you know, amped it up to match with the times. And uh, Tommy Lee Wallace couldn't do that job with, deep sincerity so he withdrew he felt horrible and doubly horrible because it was like his friends and crew that he basically was bailing on uh rick rosenthal had just come out of the american film institute with the short film that uh john carpenter deborah hill were fans of and this is such a crazy story basically rick rosenthal hadn't ended up with the same agent as john carpenter and he basically the agent's pitch to rick when he was choosing an agent was look i have john carpenter as a client People send John Carpenter movies like a dozen a day and um, he can't do them all. So I'm going to do the classic bait and switch and say, here's this young director. Uh, he could do this project rather than John Carpenter. So his agent was basically saying, look, you pick me as your agent. John Carpenter's a client of mine. All the stuff he doesn't want, I'll put you to direct. And <laughs> I'm going to get you the scraps, kid. Yeah. And like, what a pitch. And he, he took it. Um and yeah, he, basically John and Deborah and Rick sat down and talked about the script from the very beginning. It was always, the idea was to follow it just a moment later, a continuation. That was the overriding goal. The idea was, you know, if you liked one, you'll have to like two because stylistically and in terms of story development, it's just a continuation. And uh, Dean Cundy, DP, met with a young guy producing a movie called The Poltergeist. His name uh, was Steven Spielberg. He called his agent to say he met with... Uh, David and said, oh, there's a conflict. You've got Halloween 2. And he felt obligated to do it because John and Deborah, you know, give him such the opportunity. And basically he felt he got to start in the business for that. So he said integrity over valor. And he agreed to do H2 over Spielberg. Um, <laughs> and again, he said, I wanted to make it look as much as like the first movie as possible. Similar lighting and camera movement, very fluid camera, early days of the Panaglide. They're still fucking, still rocking that Panaglide in this movie. It's still just like so many POV shots in this movie. Majority of this movie was shot in a hospital setting. A real hospital is out of the question. They found a location that looked like one. It was an unused hospital in Pasadena. Very un very difficult location to shoot at, apparently. Uh, when they scouted, they were aware of the proximity to an airport, but they didn't realize how bad it would be. Apparently, there would be like 15 minutes at a time with just planes flying in with no brakes. So they had like a guy on a roof with a walkie-talkie scouting planes so they could film scenes without uh, interruption. It was just a pain in the ass, apparently. Uh, the casting of this movie is hilarious because basically we have Jamie Lee Curtis returning. We have Donald Pleasance returning and that's pretty much it. Or no, there's also like the cop from the first one, the sheriff. Is that right? Um, basically there's a few people return and then there's everybody else is just somebody that was in Rick Rosenthal's acting class. He was studying acting, not to be an actor, but because he didn't know a lot about it and he's a director. So he wanted to know a lot about it. And in the class were people like Tom Selleck, Ted Danson, Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, and he hired people he knew from the class 
took them on. Well, and said, what about those people? How come you didn't get them? Yeah, I, <laughs> I think they were probably busy doing other projects that paid them more, maybe. But um, he took them on and said, let's do a movie together. Just the right place at the right time for like basically all the cast of like the hospital. Um, there, he also, Rick Rosenthal, or no, this is, somebody told a story. I don't think it was Rick Rosenthal. Somebody told a story about how they're in a showbiz softball league with Rob Reiner, Billy Crystal, Bruno Kirby, and Christopher Guest. And Jamie Lee Curtis would come to that. And that's how she met Christopher Guest. Oh yeah, that's according to the guy who plays Bud in the movie, who also did one of the commentaries. Uh, his name is Leo Rossi. He's super funny. Yes. Co-writer of Gotti. Oh my God. <laughs> you just blew my mind with that fact. Thank God you're here. Um, He's Irwin, in it too. He has like a supporting role. Yeah, that makes more sense to me. Erwin <laughs> <laughs> um, says Donald Pleasance was the glue that made the sequels possible, like his presence and, you know, uh, I guess I want to say his notoriety. Um, and Marion Chambers also survived Halloween 1, the smoking nurse from the first movie, small role. And because she survived, she was written into this movie and gets to return. Um, so Dick Warlock, who's the stunt coordinator for this movie, who ended up playing Michael Myers. Do you want to know how he got that role? This is, this is, Dick Warlock got this role the way that my parents think Hollywood works. Are you ready? He was a stunt coordinator already. He was offered the job and he was just there in a meeting with Rick Rosenthal and he just saw the mask lying there and he put it on and he said, Hey Rick, is there any reason I can't play this guy? And he said, if Deborah doesn't care, I don't care. And then that's how he did it. He was then Michael from then on. And now he makes, he thinks it's hilarious that he like, you know, makes money off this movie and still, and goes to conventions. He loves it, but he's definitely like makes no bones about the fact. He's like, yeah, I didn't really, I never had seen Halloween. And after I got the role, I just watched that part where basically the beginning of Halloween too, where he just like sits there and rises up with uh, you know, like a, from with like a dead body rising from within a coffin. He just watched that part and was like, yeah, I got it. I'll do it. <laughs> he did. He did. Yeah, he did a good job. Yeah, he did a good job. Uh, people love him. He still goes to the horror fest. Uh, he basically uh, Dick Warlock was doubling Kurt Russell in Escape from New York, and Deborah Hill offered him the stunt coordinator job. And you know, lo and behold, now he's Michael. Uh, he knew a little about the character, as I mentioned. When he put on the mask, he said he went. <gasps> he like he just started breathing in it, and he felt what he. He's like I felt it when I put it on, and just did it, and he just went with it. So that's so, uh, one of my favorite things about this uh, Blu-ray release is they did a whole commentary with him, just him. It's like an interviewer talking to him and they keep asking him stuff about like insight into the character. And he's just like, yeah, let's put on the mask. And I was, yeah. it. I don't know. Like he doesn't have anything to add. It's really funny. Um, that's appropriate. I mean, I think Steve Miner said when like the guy playing Jason in uh, Friday the 13th part three was asking about his motivation. And he said like, you don't have a motivation. Like you're the shark from jaws. You're just a machine. And that's like the correct way to approach those figures. Totally agree. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, he also got really defensive in the documentary. He said, I got knocked by Deborah Hill. And by the way, Deborah Hill's dead, so maybe like relax a little bit. <laughs> but he was like, I got knocked by Deborah for never getting the walk down. And he, he basically said, I think she like jokingly said that she never thought he did a good Michael Myers walk. And he goes, She was on set every day and never said anything. <laughs> and he said, And Rick never said anything. Um, so he's just, he's really torn up about that. And I, I feel for him. Um, 
He, everyone said they loved working with uh, Dick. He would take care of you like as an actor. He's your link to safety. Basically, he would be responsible for the kill scenes. And it's kind of helpful to have your guy responsible for your stunt coordinating kill scenes being the one who's killing them. Because he'd be like, okay, I'm going to hit you on the head with this hammer now. And like he would just walk them all through it, and it would he would do a really great job. Everyone loved him. Uh, Deborah Hill also campaigned against Leo Rossi to play Bud. Did you know this, uh, Hoff? He, no. Basically, she said, this movie takes place in middle America. Leo Rossi is an East Coast guy. His rhythms are East Coast. <laughs> There's no way. And Rick, because he's a friend of Rick's from the fucking acting class, Rick just kept saying, be patient. And he never let up. And he wore her down. And he eventually got it. Um, and he said one of the things that convinced everyone he was great was when he was like, sing a, uh, they were telling him to sing a song, how Bud would sing it. And... Um, in the movie, they, you know, tried a bunch of different pop songs. We was like, no, we can't use it for rights issues. And like, well, what can we do? He's like, a happy birthday? He's like, no, 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 not happy birthday. So he ends up singing Amazing Grace. And what does he say? He says, Amazing Grace, let me sit on your face. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so that became, like, such a popular thing. And everyone loves Leo Rossi. And that role almost didn't go to him. And that improv almost never happened because that was all him. So... Huh? Uh, every cast member loves Leo. There's a million uh, talking heads talking about how Leo's great. Leo and the oh, there's a Leo talks about doing the hot tub scene and how he convinced her to go. Basically, it was a nude scene that everyone agreed to, but they all got cold feet. And then he went in first, and it was super cold. And he said, "I looked down, and my dick was like a raisin." Talk about Italian stallion, forget it. Like he's the most he's the most New York City guy ever. Hey, yeah. <laughs> So you got to do a nude scene. You got romance. You got it, babe. Like, he's, he's so funny. Um, yeah, so that was fun. Sorry, I'm just going through the documentary before I we go into the movie. Um, top-notch stuntman as Michael was helpful. Oh, my God. One of the actresses hit the corner of the desk because they forgot to move it during a kill scene. And, um, and she was yelling, like, use it, use it, because she's bleeding. And Rick was like, literally, we can't use this footage. Please stop. And they went to the ER, and she got 11 stitches in her eye. Uh, and the shot was all of her shots were scenes were shot with makeup after that. I forget which one that is. I think it's the nurse that ended up getting like scalpeled in the back and then her shoes fall off, which I love. Mm. Um, they built a pool of blood for the scene where the guy slips on the blood and like uh, dies of it, <laughs> which is one of my favorite <laughs> right. kills in the movie. Um, that whole thing, they knew it was too much blood, but they had already like set it up and they just went with it. Like they all were like, this is way too much blood for one person's body. And they were like, whatever. Um, and uh, blah, the firewalk, one of the final stunts was all done practically. The whole explosion, the explosion went, was way bigger than expected. The whole Lord, the loading door blew off. The, light, <laughs> the fire was not contained as easily as it should have been. And Dick Warlock burned his arms and he showed the scars because the suit he was in, which he was just in the fire suit as he's walking, um, the suit he was in had zippers on the arms. So when it, it just like burned, the, oh, imagine God. what you, yeah, imagine like a full zipper burn on your arm. And that's exactly oh. what it looks like. Oh. And he basically said they changed that suit like a year later, like to not have <laughs> zippers in the arms anymore. But he did, basically he got that burn and then did it again. He did it twice. Uh, but yeah, they changed oh. the suit years later to not have zippers. I thought that was crazy. Uh, Dick Warlock also mentions in both commentary and documentary that he stole the mask and the coveralls and the scalpel and all the stuff from the set. Like there, he basically would ask, does anyone want this? And they would say no. And he would just take it. So he has, he has so many things. Um, well, so 
I, I don't know if the documentary touched on this. As I recall, the mask they use in this movie is the same like mask prop that they used in the first film, right? Confirmed. Yes. Yeah. It, it is. Wasn't it like under someone's mattress for three years or something like that? Yeah, Deborah Hill kept it. Deborah Hill yeah. had it under her mattress for three years and brought it back out for this movie. And I think after this movie is when they started getting like a bunch of them or different variations. Mm-hmm. But for this one, it was that same one. And then they had another one that they used to put on that poor 17-year-old who gets murdered. And then they had, I think, a couple stunt ones that they like burned in a fire at the end. But yeah, it was the original mask. Uh, so what happened with this movie is really interesting. So there's an, the theatrical version is not the original ending. We'll get to the ending, the original ending at some point. We talk about the TV edition, I guess. Um, Rick doesn't know who made the decision to cut the ending, but we'll talk about that. He says there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen on this one. John Carpenter had a very strong opinion. Mustafa Akkad had a very strong opinion. Dino De Laurentiis, who was financier on this one because it was more money, uh, had a lot of opinions, and they would never agree. So he'll never forget that when Dino saw it, he thought the scene with the razor blade in the kid's mouth was beyond the pale. He thought it was horrible, and he wanted it out. But Carpenter and Deborah loved it so much, so that thing stayed. So it was basically like they would be like, coordinated efforts to like trick each other into being like yeah yeah, yeah we cut that out and then they wouldn't cut <laughs> that um but there's the editor of this movie was someone named mark goldblatt who edited the majority of the movie and then uh a guy named skip something or other i didn't write down his last name skip school something skip was called in uh to come in and cut a tv version of halloween 2 basically skip was making a in the same editing suite or like the suite over making a TV version of Halloween one. And John and mm-hmm. Deborah were not happy with the director's cut. Uh, Rick Rosenthal's first cut of Halloween two that Mark Goldblatt edited. So they just asked skip if he would come in and work on it over the weekend with John, cause they wanted fresh eyes on it. So John Carpenter and this new editor named skip <laughs> cut out 14 minutes of the movie. Uh, and then John Carpenter, wrote new scenes and shot them. And those scenes were later added to the actual movie and they, uh, they upped the ante of the stakes and the body count. So like there's, we'll talk about it more, talk about the movie, I guess, but like that sequence in the opening scene where it's like, we go to the, you know, he takes a knife from the, the elderly couple's house and then he kills the neighbor. That whole neighbor being killed sequence was added. Like that wasn't there at all. John Carpenter said, John, what John Carpenter said was this movie isn't scary. And he went back in and wrote in some more scares and kills. And like, you can tell that John shot that scene because I'm pretty sure every other POV shot in this movie is shot like an actual POV shot. Whereas in Halloween, you're, you'll notice that Michael's like off in the peripheral a lot of the time and like just standing in the shot in some way. And it isn't until that scene, I think, in this movie where, like, you see Michael just kind of standing outside and watching that girl. And it's like, oh, this is John Carpenter ghost directing. It's really interesting. And I didn't know about that until the documentary. So basically, John showed up on set while the director wasn't there. And nowhere in the movie did it explain how Michael knew that Laurie was in the hospital. So he also shot the scene where the kid walks down the street with a boombox <laughs> that explains <laughs> Laurie Strode's in the hospital. And then, like, he stops and hears that and then walk, keeps walking. So that's why that scene was added. An uh, elegant solution. An ele- very elegant solution. I love we'll that. We'll get Radio Rahim to fill in this <laughs> hole for us. Um, so the other kill he makes, walks across the neighbor's yard, kills the girl early. That's what I mentioned. He killed. They jacked up the violence. That 
cop getting his throat slit later was added. Like, so many things were added just to make it bloodier in what the movie is. Um, Skip liked Halloween 2 and liked what John came up with. He amplified some character stuff and they moved the picture along. Rick says there were all there, there were always other factors uh, in filmmaking. It's a collaborative art. If you want to do a single-person art, go take on sculpting, is what he said. He said there's a sense of authorship, you know, a true personal story, but not in this case, and sometimes you're hired to do a certain kind of job, and that's him, like, justifying them fucking up his movie, because uh, he definitely... It was reported that he was not happy with, you know, who would be happy with the director coming in and shooting stuff on your movie? Um... Halloween series, uh, the, the score in this movie became electronic because, honestly, a budget, budgetary reasons. They needed nobody else. They needed one guy, not an orchestra this time. So there was a 16-track of John's original score. Uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, Alan uh, Howarth? Yeah, Howarth uh, got a 16-track of John's score, transferred it to 24, and then overdubbed his track over John's. So what we literally hear in the movie is literally an overdub of... Halloween one and he basically just brought it it's like a darker gothic texture he added rhythm and like a beat and he said he was editing this or doing this score simultaneously as he was doing the score for Star Trek 2 so in the morning he would do Star Trek 2 in the afternoon he would do Halloween 2 and I love that vibe and I love that we're all kind of doing that work from home type of shit right now <laughs> but I love that he was at home doing that I then that is so cool I really like the sound you got for the music here yeah the sound is definitely like okay, we're keeping the 5-4 rhythm of the iconic sound, but it does sound like, not to use the same expression I used earlier, but it's like, this isn't the Halloween you remember. Now it's 1981. <laughs> it's not, it's like, it's kind of ushering it into the 80s almost, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. um, what else do I have here? Um, John was doing the thing. Um, he, oh yeah, basically the reason he did the score like that is because John was doing the thing. And he just told uh, Hovarth, just update it, beef it up a bit so they can use it in Halloween 2, and that was it. Like, they basically just, like, gave this guy the, the score for the first one and said, over, like, fix it. And he did. And that's what happened. Uh, Irwin says the film was Pavlovian. Halloween 1 was an original creative innovation. 2 was, by its very nature, imitative and pedestrian. Um, Irwin says the connection between Halloween 1 and all the sequels is invalid in his mind. <laughs> um... He says Halloween, uh, other people say Halloween 2 is a great extension of the first one. It had its own standalone suspense. Good enough and has the same kick. Halloween 1 is iconic one and close enough to the first to be a valid sequel. I'm just reading random straight notes at this point. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, wonderful iconic scenes in it, but that was Bud talking. And he's prejudiced. Um, <laughs> let's see. Deleted scenes we can talk about when we talk about the different cuts. So let's talk about the movie. The movie opens... Hoff, let's talk about how the movie opened. Does it open with... It opens with not this movie, in fact. Right. Well, it opens with the very end of the first film using mostly, like, the actual shots from that movie. Though I think the shot of, like, the front of um, the, uh, the Doyle house, I guess, yes. where the camera's kind of moving around and they show Michael falling off the balcony, I think that was new for this yes. film. Yes. But it's, yeah, mostly old footage at the beginning. Yeah, mostly old footage at the beginning. And then basically once that shot happens where, like, he falls off the balcony, then we kind of are ushered into, like, new footage. Oh, my God, look, it's like the continuation <laughs> of the same night. And it's Dr. Loomis, basically a neighbor comes out who heard all the noise and is like, what's going on? It's like, trick or treat. What does he say? Is this trick or treat is going to be the death of me or something. Well, I, I've been <laughs> trick or treated to death tonight. Yes, I've been <laughs> trick or treated to death tonight. And then Loomis 
in his most one of my favorite lines in the movie. How, what does he say, Hoff? You don't know what death is. You don't know what death is. <laughs> he is like foaming at the mouth in this entire movie. No, nope, and... no figures of speech allowed talking to Loomis about death. <laughs> yeah, he um, through it's kind of par for the course for the rest of the franchise. He, I would say he kind of, I guess he does it in the first one too, but he kind of dials it up right away in this movie and he doesn't stop oh. in any of them. And I <laughs> love that. I love him for that. Um, so basically opening introduces just us to the same idea where the movie ended. Um, people are dead. Uh, Laurie Strode has been stabbed, but is not dead. Uh, Sam Loomis is obsessed just absolutely obsessed with finding Michael. Wants to find Michael so bad. Uh, <laughs> he just got away again. But oh boy, he's going to keep looking for him. And he's just going to continue his pursuit. Uh, and then, don't we... Uh, this is where I'm confused. I just watched the TV version, which is all chopped up to shit. But I'm pretty sure after uh, Loomis shot, don't we get like Laurie Strode to get taken to the hospital? That might happen mm -hmm. a little later. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think I think at first that you kind of continue with it's like this weird kind of like encore of Michael Myers yes. prying prowling right. around the neighborhood, and that's when you get the big kitchen thing. I think where he takes the knife. Um, right. It's well, like. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just gonna say it feels like as if you're sort of continuing Halloween unabated. <laughs> like it's like back to the business of Halloween. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, I, I'm uh, glad you brought me on for this episode because he takes that knife while the old couple is uh, doing what a lot of horror movie characters do is watch a public domain horror film on TV, <laughs> specifically Night of the Living Dead, which is usually the film that gets pulled for that. It, it, is, it is kind of the like poster boy of if you're going to use a public domain horror film in your movie, it's probably going to be I'm coming to get you, Barbara. But in this one, it's just the the, the titles. Uh, it's like the cut to his title card or the director card, isn't it? It's like directed by George A. Romero, I think it says. In yes. This one. And then they bring back the climax. Uh, I think the security guard is watching it on TV later on also. That's right. Through lines. Um, mm -hmm. The reason I got confused is because in the TV edit, it goes from, first of all, it starts, <laughs> the TV edit starts with the credits that don't happen until after the recap in the in the real version. So the TV version goes, um, opening credits, recap. That's very cool. Yeah, great opening credits, then recap, and then it goes Laurie Strode in the hospital and does all this Laurie Strode in the hospital business, and then it does Michael Myers stuff. Theatrical yeah. version goes, um, recap, then title sequence. Am I wrong, or is that right? I think that's right. Yeah, yeah and then... Very cool title sequence. With they brought back the pumpkin, but this time the pumpkin that's burning the jack o' lantern turned into like a skull, and it's yeah. super badass. It's really stupid, but it rules. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's great. Um, so yeah, the theatrical version has uh, recap credits. Then we get to Loomis, and then we follow Michael through the elderly couple's house. He grabs a knife, leaves a pile of blood. Ladies, you know, sees the blood, screams. Neighbor hears uh, old lady screaming, comes out to look at it or like ask if everything's okay, but didn't really do, you know, didn't really follow through on that at all. She, she, she goes out and says, hey, is everything okay? No response. All right, I'll go back in. And then that's where we see Michael lurking. And that's like, hey, look, John Carpenter stepped in to ghost direct for a minute. Um, 
And then I'm pretty sure that girl gets killed. And yes. right. Yep. Okay. I'm on I'm on track so far. Uh, <laughs> and then I'm pretty sure Loomis ends up like teaming up with the sheriff and they start mm-hmm. look just like basically driving around looking for Michael. Yeah, Loomis deputizes himself, uh, decides he is the sheriff now, and makes the sheriff drive him around looking for Michael. Which um, leads to them, like, I don't know how it starts, but I'm pretty sure they just, like, doesn't Loomis just, like, see a figure in the distance, and there's, like, a bunch of kids trick-or-treating right there, and he pulls out his gun, and (laughs) and he, like, points it in that direction, and, like, everyone freaks out, and the guy starts running, and, uh... This guy starts running, and you can, and I think as viewers you can tell it's not Michael because the the wig has like blonde hair. It's like a slightly different wig, but it's clearly like this is the Michael Myers wig, but it has a different hairstyle. But it's clear that they think it's Michael, and then in the most hilarious death in the franchise probably, and one that's not committed by Michael, um, this guy in a mask who is being chased by Loomis and the sheriff, who they think is My- uh, Michael for a second, gets absolutely obliterated by a a police squad car, which pins him to another car and then bursts into flames. Like it is, it is like a Michael Bay style explosion in the middle of a Halloween movie. And, and I don't know if this is getting too far ahead, but they throw in this incredibly cruel twist where the guy that that happens to turns out to be Ben Tramer the guy that Laurie had a crush on in the first movie and was like thinking about going to the dance with, which is such a bizarre thing to throw in. Cause how many people would even remember that? But like anyone who's seen the movie a million times, like, Oh yeah. Know that like boy that our nice protagonist had a crush on. He burned alive. <laughs> <laughs> that just ties up the loose end. So you're not spending yeah. the whole movie going, where's Ben, where's Ben going to come in? It's well, fan service, yes. This is what all the reporting, and I think Michael Rothman alluded to it last week, who's read the script or heard about the script. It's, it's what, what all the reporting on Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends have led me to believe those movies are going to be, which is just total fan service. Because every headline I've seen on Bloody Disgusting is like, this person who had a bit part in Halloween 6 is now added. And it's like, who is that for? It's like totally... <sighs> for like the horror convention crowd which i feel like is such a small window of people and even then it's like i don't know i just don't really see the bottom line i i I just don't get it do you have any do you get it (laughs) jess uh jesse or or, or off why they would do do that stuff the fan service i don't know if it's like a like an instinct to reassure fans that they're not you know i feel like the you know 2018 movie being a direct sequel to the, the 78 movie, as 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 often the case when something gets re rebooted. Now, I wonder if they feel like, oh well, it's we don't want to completely leave the fans of other sequels out in the cold and say, yeah, this thing you liked is dumb. We don't like it. You know, forget all those fucking other sequels or whatever. So if they want to include that as kind of a way of saying, oh, but we like them too. We're just not. We're just yeah. Not it's it's kind of they're like doing one thing with one hand and another with the other hand. Like they're saying, okay, fuck your, fuck this franchise. We're only doing a sequel to the original. And then the next time around, they're like, but <laughs> all those people you love are back this time. We got Ben Tramer. We're going to set him on the fire again. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, if they set Ben Tramer on fire again in Halloween Kills, I don't even know if I can handle it. He's just going to spontaneous. <laughs> yeah. This kid can't fucking cut a break. Um, <laughs> 
So not only, do, I mean, this kid gets murdered. They linger on his burning face uh, a while, a lot. In the TV edition, you still see him get hit by the car, but actually, maybe the moment of impact you don't see, and they just cut away to Loomis's face as it happens, <laughs> which is hilarious. Just like, oh shit, watching a murder, cool. Um, and then I'm pretty sure they go to the house from the first movie and the sheriff discovers his daughter Annie's one of the people killed and he flips out and blames Loomis for letting him loose and Loomis goes on like a little does gives a little speech maybe Hoff knows it better than I do he basically basically starts saying like he's not human I've been watching him for 16 years yeah he rehashes his speech from the first movie basically (laughs) (laughs) that was a pretty good Donald Pleasance I'm gonna I wish I had I wish I had the lines here it would be better But I think at at this point, when they find out Annie's dead, I think that's the same sequence in which, like, Lori's escorted out on a stretcher and put in an ambulance. And she's like, don't put me to sleep. Don't put me to sleep. Um, And in in the ambulance are a couple EMTs. One of them is named, ooh, shit, Jimmy? Yeah, it's Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy, and his nickname is Fuck Ben Tramer, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Jimmy and nurse, uh, there's a nurse, or Jimmy and, and, uh, I've mentioned his name already more than once, uh, Bud. Jimmy and Bud are the EMTs, I believe, and they mention, like, offhandedly, you know her? And, 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 uh, he goes, who was it? It's, it's, what's his name? Jimmy, who goes, yeah, uh, my brother goes to school with her. It's Lori Strode. And it's like, Strode Realty? So, like, we kind of get, like, the community vibe of they know who she is. Um, Jimmy and nurse Jill Franco search the hospital. F- oh, wait. What? That's the perfect Lori's when she escapes. Um, this, this Wikipedia description is horrible. Uh, <laughs> Michael discovers Lori's location after overhearing a news broadcast by the young kid, by young radio Rahim, and uh, makes a beeline to the hospital. When he gets there, this is something that's made super clear in the TV cut that's not super clear in the theatrical cut. When he gets to the hospital, he cuts the phone lines and disables all the cars. In the theatrical cut, it just, like, you know that happens, but it's because characters tell you it happens, I believe. Yeah, the, the phones are dead, but it's like, and you figure something's amiss, but it's like, and also maybe I'm just not an intended viewer, but I did not get disables all the cars. What the fuck is Michael Myers doing disabling cars? Is he just like... He basically slashes the, the tires of that one lady's car, and oh, I don't know right. what else he does. The, yeah, that has the tires slashed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right, this passes the smell test. <laughs> um, what else does he do? Uh, he wanders the halls in search of Lori, killing security guards, doctors, and nurses that get in his way. What's happening simultaneously is, like, Loomis is driving around with the deputy now because the sheriff is, like, dealing with his dead daughter now. So Loomis and the deputy are driving around. They go to Michael Myers' house because they think he might be there, which is something that the TV cut they say explicitly that they don't say in the actual cut. The actual cut, they just show up there and there's like a mob there, I'm pretty sure. And they have to like, I don't know if they even tell people that he's not there in that version. But uh, there's some point where, uh, I was hoping Hoff could talk about this a little bit. There's some point where they like go to an elementary school because Michael ended up there yes talk about this okay yeah i did want to talk about this so they go to an elementary school where they find as i recall in a classroom uh there is like a knife stuck in a like little kid's drawing of a family and the word 
Samhain is written, I think, on the chalkboard in blood. Was there anything Sam else Hain? left there? Am I leaving anything out? Uh, no. Samhain, is that what it's written? Did I say it wrong? Well, see, that's the... Okay, so this scene is riddled with inaccuracies. So I, I wanted to address that. <laughs> okay, we're gonna, uh, let me, let me, right, let me play the Cinema Sins music real quick. Yeah, please. <laughs> okay, um, go ahead. <laughs> this Celtic word is written on the blackboard. Loomis says it's Samhain. It means uh, Lord of the Dead. That's not actually true. This is a common misconception. First of all, it's pronounced Samhain, not Samhain. And uh, it refers to a Celtic harvest festival, basically a forerunner of Halloween. People thought it meant Lord of the Dead for a long time, basically because of some erroneous scholarship on the part of a British military engineer in the 18th century <laughs> named Charles Valancey. What the hell is like, happening right now? About... <laughs> He wrote some books about the history of the Irish people where he said that uh, Samhain was this, like, you know, creepy Lord of the Dead god. But everyone now seems to think, like, we have no idea where Charles Valancey got that from. He made it up, basically, <laughs> while he was trying to, like, prove that the Irish originally came from Armenia, I think. So Halloween 2 unfortunately perpetuates this uh, misinformation. <laughs> it's, it's Loom you know, Loomis, not a strong scholar of Irish history. No. Not excellent marksman, uh, not much of a doctor, not much of a police officer. I'm not sure. I'm Guys, I'm not sure about this guy anymore. I'm just <laughs> not sure. I'm also just not sure about the Samhain stuff and what it's supposed to mean. Hoff, do you have a take on, like, why Michael would write that in blood on a chalkboard? <laughs> right. Uh, well, yeah, the implication is that, right, Michael was there, and this is one of his little, you know, tableau that he set up, like when he put uh, his sister's gravestone above <laughs> Annie's body or whatever. I mean, this is... The I man guess, loves sort of, props and theatrics. He does. He's crafty. Yeah. Um, but, I, I mean, this is like a sort of prototype, I guess, of what you get in a full-fledged form in Halloween 6, where they try to tie Michael to this ah, big sort of, of supernatural mythology, right? And it's not really explained uh, in this movie, but I think it's sort of laying the groundwork for that kind of idea, I guess. There's also a strange dream sequence at some point in this movie where Laurie Strode has a dream that's like a woman says, I'm not your mother in it, and you start to like get these vibes about like the sister reveal. Um, mm -hmm. I don't even remember where that happens. I just, in my notes, write, weird dream. <laughs> um, <laughs> but back to the synopsis, I found a much better synopsis that's like detailed to the minute. Another moment that I appreciate that I liked, uh, when Karen, a young nurse who works in the nursery arrives, uh, after staying too late at the Halloween party, um, I just love the idea that like, there's a POV shot of Michael in like a maternity ward in like a nursery with a bunch of babies and like, this is the shot of him in there. And like for a moment, you're like, is Michael going to just like grab a baby and like s do something with it? But he doesn't. And I, well, I think, should he, and that, should he? I guess that's my question. <laughs> I think what's interesting about that, as brief as that moment is, is that feels, I mean, this gets really nitpicky because I'm not like some kind of expert on the psychology of Michael Myers. And neither was the actor who played him in this movie in subsequent movies, apparently. Yeah. Uh, but, like, that to me is creepier and more Michael Myers-y based on the first movie than the idea that he's going and, like, tampering with every car in the parking lot. <laughs> That's so methodical and planned out. Like, but him wandering into a, a nursery and you wondering, oh, is he going to, like, do something horrible? That, to me, is a little more of, like, the creepiness you get from the first Halloween. And they sort of replay that moment in the 2018 movie also. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. They do do that. I totally forgot. Um, also, the hospital... 
just generally speaking, I'm pretty sure the doctor is drunk when they get there. Or yes. like they say he's drunk. He just got back from the country club. Um, everyone there is, I would say, hot and horny. Very hot and horny hospital. <laughs> um, so yeah, she That's arrives. I'm sorry? That's what they're being treated for is mm. horniness. Yes. <laughs> they all got it real bad. Uh, she is sharply rep- reprimanded by Mrs. Alves when she gets there, even as they're both unaware that Michael Myers is lurking in the hospital watching them. Uh, did I miss anything in my description? Basically, I got the order wrong. The paramedics arrived at the Doyle house and took Lori away. That's when we meet all the EMTs and stuff, and then then we cut to Loomis circling the neighborhood, and they happen upon the young guy who they kill in the car. Um, then that nurse thing happens that I mentioned. Uh, Jimmy schemes to be alone with Lori, both to console her and get closer to her. He reveals to her that the crazy man who was pursuing her earlier was Michael Myers, who escaped from the mental hospital the night before. Uh, Lori is confused and does not understand why she seems to have been targeted by Michael Myers. But she knows who Michael Myers is. It's important, I think, to know. She goes like, Myers? Like the boy who killed his sister? And she's like, yeah, that's the one. Uh, Mrs. Alves interrupts and sends Jimmy away then discovers that the telephones are out of service. The security guard uh, goes to explore the basement in the rear of the hospital to search for the trouble, and after he searches one of the closets, Michael leaps out and kills him by bashing him over the head with the back of a hammer. Uh, Mr. Garrett's death goes unnoticed. Uh, across town, Loomis and Hunt investigate a break-in at the elementary school. We'll talk about the Sam Hain. Loomis's remarks on the Celtic origin of the word um, are incorrect, according to Hoff Matthews. And he yes. is surprised when Marion Chambers approaches him. Nurse Chambers, who was with Loomis the previous night when Michael made his escape, has been sent with a marshal to return Loomis to Haddonfield on orders from the governor. Loomis is forcibly taken away while Hunt promises to find Michael. Meanwhile, Michael continues to murder the staff at the hospital. Bud and Karen attempt to make love in the, you know, the hospital hot tub. But it's a, <laughs> it, it's a therapy pool. I get it. Uh, M- Michael turns up the temperature until Bud gets out to check it. Then he str- strangles Bud to death. We see him get strangled in the background through like, how do you describe that window? Like it's like a obscure marbled glass. Yeah, like a marbled glass where you can't see them, but you see their outlines kind of. Um, and then he approaches Karen from behind and seizes her and holds her face in the scalding hot water until she drowns. And he keeps pulling her face out, and her face is less and or more and more like flaky. <laughs> Um, yes, because he, he turned the therapy pool up to its scald setting. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. Also, in the TV version, again, there's another shot of him, like, doing this. So, in the TV version, you get all the, like, Michael Myers does tasks that get cut out of the theatrical version, like, turning knobs. Like, I really do appreciate those shots, though. They're really funny. Um Lori has a reaction to her medication and goes into shock. And when Janet goes to get Dr. Mixter, she finds him dead in his private office, a needle thrust into one eyeball. Then Myers appears behind Janet and grabs her, thrusts another needle into her temple until she too falls down. Uh, Jimmy goes off to find help and nobody returns. And Jill is summoned by another patient while she is gone. Michael enters Lori's room and, uh, and stabs at her bed, but she's gone. She basically put a bunch of pillows in her place. Classic move. He thought he was fooled and stabbed the pillows. Uh, Lori was only pretending to have a reaction to medication, by the way. She just wanted to escape. Uh, when Jill returns, she finds the room empty. Hindered by a cracked ankle and dazed from the drugs, Lori limps through the now quiet halls of the hospital, looking for a safe place to hide. Um, this is when the movie is at its coolest in terms of, like, direction, I would say. Like, when the, the hallways are really creepy and, like, it's just, like, this maze of a place that, like, the, the layout of the place makes no sense. <laughs> it's just, like, hallways, 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 but they're all creepy and it's scary. Um... 
Jimmy reappears and sends Jill off to get help, telling her to drive into town and bring back the police. But after she leaves, she finds the body of Mrs. Alves in a nearby operating room tied to a table, an IV tube in her arm, having drained all of her blood onto the floor. Like, all of her blood. Like, a pool of it. Uh, suddenly, he panics and tries to run, but he slips in the blood and falls onto his back, hitting his head on the floor, rendering him unconscious. We'll get back to why that's hilarious in a little bit. Uh, Jill attempts to leave the hospital, but all the cars in the parking lot have been disabled by a crafty Michael. The <laughs> tires are slashed. The engines have been tampered with. After she runs back into the hospital, she sees Lori in the hallway and tries to reach her. But this is when Michael does the best kill in the movie, probably. Appears after uh, resting for a while in one of the vacant rooms. I like how it says he was resting for a while. <laughs> that was like... In the TV like... cut, you get to see him taking a little nap. <laughs> yeah, the TV cut cuts to him and like having his hospital apple juice, <laughs> like whatever. <laughs> um, Lori witnesses uh, the murder. Uh, uh, Michael appears from the vacant room or whatever, kills her with a scalp on the back. Her shoes fall off. It's great. Lori witnesses it and is terrified into action. She runs through the halls with Michael in pursuit, rushing down a stairwell and into the basement. Lori corners herself in a boiler room and must climb through a small window near the ceiling to escape. Michael almost slashes her ankles. After nearly cornering her again in an elevator, Lori escapes and rushes into the parking lot, hiding in a parked car. In the Marshall's car, Marion has discovered or has a discussion with Dr. Loomis where she reveals information that he did not previously know. And nobody knew. This is all new information. Here we go. Lori Strode is actually the sister of Michael Myers, born two years before Michael's original crime and adopted after the death of the parents two years after. So this is a little piece of information that, yes, technically was written in by John Carpenter at some point that ended up being like the traject like the most important focal point of this entire franchise for some fucking reason. <laughs> this throwaway thing that Carpenter says is stupid is now the focus of every movie since this one and it's delivered so beautifully in a massive exposition dump in the back of a car <laughs> in a like completely clunky uninteresting conversation that's not even uh directed or written as a huge revelation but rather a kind of like oh yeah by the way i guess yeah i guess you didn't know this. there's yeah. not even like a musical sting it's very yeah. just like oh by the way the reason this is all happening is this and it's like oh okay so Loomis takes his information, immediately understands that Michael's after Lori for a reason, and commandeers the car. He actually shoots through the window of the car, I think, to make him turn around. He won't turn around. He goes, what if I shot the car? And then he does. <laughs> That's my, my car. What do you yeah. people do? Fire a warning shot? And then Yeah. He... Yes. Yeah. Uh, in the parking lot of the hospital, Lori sees a dark shape open the car door and get inside. It's Jimmy. He tries to start the, the car. Uh, Jimmy's the one who slipped and hit his head, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he slipped in the blood. Yeah, so he tries to start the car and can't. Lori tries to talk to him, but then he falls over on the wheel again, <laughs> passed out, hits his head on the wheel. And now the horn goes off. So now Lori's in panic again because now Michael knows where she is. Uh, her hiding place has been revealed. She tries to leave the car and falls in the parking lot, still dazed. As she lays there, the marshal's car pulls up and Loomis, Marion, and the marshal get out and go to the hospital. Lori cannot cry out until it's too late and they're inside, pulling the door shut behind them. So she's out and they're going in. As she gets to her feet, Michael appears across the parking lot, walking slowly toward her. Lori runs to the doors and bangs on them, screaming and attracts the attention of the others. They let her inside, and Myers walks right through the glass, uh, the closed glass doors. He just breaks it because he's cool. It's awesome. Uh, Loomis <laughs> shoots him with the gun, and he falls over, seemingly dead. After sending Marion out to the marshal's car to use the radio for summoning the police, Loomis turns to comfort Lori. 
Michael rises up again and slits the marshal's throat who's standing right there over the body after Loomis tells him not to do that. Uh, <laughs> he slits his throat with a scalpel and then chases Loomis and Lori deeper to the hospital. They corner themselves in the operating room. As Michael breaks down the door, Loomis gives Lori his gun, which only has two shots left in it. And Loomis has another gun. When Michael gets in, he stabs Loomis in the stomach. Loomis falls over, mortally wounded. Lori tries to stop Michael by calling his name, which he stops for a minute to look at her. But he soon advances on uh, and, sh- and she shoots him in the eyes, shoots him in the head, presumably twice in the eyes, because you get this amazing, iconic shot of blood dripping out of the two gaping eye holes in the mask. It's pretty great. He, like, stumbles around. Uh, yeah, and- swinging his scalpel around, like, making noises like it's a palm frond or something. <laughs> <laughs> He's playing, he plays a ground of fruit ninja before <laughs> leaving. Uh, Dick Whitlock also hates that. He, like, think he, the fans love that part and always cheer, and he hates it. He thinks it's awkward and looks weird, uh, him running around with the, the scalpel. Uh, Lori, uh, blah, 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 he starts swinging the scalpel wildly. Loomis struggles to his feet and begins releasing oxygen into the room from the many tanks on the wall. Lori follows suit until the doctor tells her to run. She bolts from the room and runs down the hall as Loomis ignites a cigarette lighter, causing a huge explosion. Even from the inferno, <laughs> Myers emerges and keeps walking towards Lori with zippers on his arm until the flames consume him and he falls. As the sky lightens in the morning, Lori is taken outside the hospital and placed into the back of an ambulance as reporters authorities and other onlookers watch she stares blankly as the ambulance pulls away seemingly in shock but alive the final image of the film is the face of michael's burning corpse except in the tv version you want to know how it ends jesse yeah yeah in the tv version uh the alternate ending is i'm trying to find this one so i can read it without just like saying it to you uh the television cut ends with uh, extended ending showing Jimmy alive with a bandaged head wound from his slip in the ambulance with Lori. He pops up. It's like a final jump scare. He pops up like Michael does in the beginning, like in the end of Halloween one. And then he's like, and then Lori goes, Oh, we made it. And it's basically the TV cut has a lot that was cut out in theatrical cut. That is basically relationship building between those two characters as if, I don't know this movie. Did you guys think the movie needed a relationship? Uh, story between Laurie and Jimmy because the TV cut does. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it would make it make a little more sense because the, there's a, the like he knows who she is already and she kind of knows him a little bit. Is doing a lot of work right now. I mean, I, I guess my feeling would be the opposite that maybe that maybe it would be better if Jimmy wasn't in this movie at all <laughs> <laughs> because of poor Ben. Man, I miss Ben. Yeah, yeah. Ben gets a bum rap. Um, and that ending is also just like, it's such like a rosy ending for a Halloween movie, like kind of the polar opposite of the way the last movie ended. And I like that this one ends, even though it's still, even though Michael, the other one ended more on like a cliffhanger where Michael gets away. This one, he's presumably dead, but we, we, we find out, you know, movies later, it's not the thing. He's not dead. He never can die all that stuff. But this movie does kind of have an ending. It's like, you know, he might be dead, he might not be, but the TV version just softens it up a little and uh, gives <laughs> Jamie Lee a boy toy. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else from that uh, last section that's worth mentioning. The huge explosion we mentioned, Myers emerges and keeps walking towards them. Uh, what do you guys think of this movie, Jesse? What do you think about it? So, you know, I feel like everything I've said so far has been kind of making fun of this movie, but I will say I 
mostly kind of like it. Uh, I mean, as far as like a slashing movie goes, I mean, like everything you've said about it in terms of behind the scenes stuff and, and kind of what the people who made the movie thought of the movie, I think is spot on. Like, this is not as good a movie as Halloween, and obviously, and it does a lot of the same stuff as Halloween, but doesn't do it as well. It's really more of a like, right, like what if Halloween was like a kind of regular slasher movie, um, which is, you know, Halloween helped like create or co-create or sort of advance or whatever the slasher movie genre. So it's kind of a weird thought experiment. Like, oh, what if, what if this like genre defining classic was like actually just kind of a, you know, mid-level reasonably well-made slasher movie but it is like a pretty well-made well-made movie in terms of you know effectiveness it's scary it's suspenseful there's like there's cool gory shit that happens in it um it's not like the characters in the first halloween movie are like indelible so it's not like it loses out that much uh, on that end and i what i do like about it and when i think weirdly and we'll talk about this you know i guess in a few weeks or more than a few weeks with um zombies version of it is that it really does feel nightmarish in a way that I think is pretty effective. And that's kind of like the best I can say for it as a sequel is that it kind of feels like I'm having experienced what happens in Halloween. This is like a nightmare you might have about Michael Myers chasing you. Um, it like makes even less sense in a lot of ways, although it's less, it's like both less eerie, but makes less sense. on like, a, you know, like when I'm talking, when you talk about like him disabling the cars, like when he was like methodically going through a parking lot, like get, when that happened, when he's like tinkering with all the cars or whatever, but it does have kind of a nightmare logic way that it proceeds where no one can really help Laurie. And that, you know, that's in there in the first movie and much more elegantly directed and much more chilling but there is the kind of like no i wouldn't say surreal but there's something kind of vivid and strange about even though i think the movie what the movie doesn't do well is really the michael myers stuff um like besides even him being laurie's brother and giving him this motivation that i you know don't particularly care for and the movie really doesn't do much with um there is a little, it does feel a little more like he's relishing the, the kills and like designing his kills a little more in, in the style of a, you know, more contemporary slasher uh, bad guy. Um, so I know I was weirdly like thinking of it as Michael Myers, even though he doesn't have much character in the 1978 movie per se. I do think it feels off in that regard. Like the, the actor and Deborah Hill talking about not getting the walk. Honestly, I, I can see it. He doesn't really have the same weird, creepy physicality. I mean, it's, it's, to me, the, the difference comes down to, in the first movie, uh, Myers gets six gets the chamber emptied into him, six shots or whatever, and falls down, and then like falls out a window, and then is mysteriously gone. And that's very creepy. It's like not realistic at all, but it's very scary. And here, it's more like you know, and they again they they do try to start to kind of offer a bizarre explanation for it with the Irish history that Loomis mangles uh, as he mangles everything else. But <laughs> there's like. It's less scary to me to see him shot twice in the head and be on fire and not die because it's there's something more direct about it. You know, like there's like this creepy implication where you see him go down from bullets and then disappear. And it's like, oh, where did he go? What the fuck? And this is just like, OK, we see him get shot in the head and bleed out his eyeballs and go blind and catch on fire and he doesn't die. That's like more like the Terminator, which is it's creepy in Terminator. But like there, it's I don't know that that that's kind of where the movie loses me is where you sort of 
taking the implication of his sort of weird invincibility that, that powers the first movie and make it kind of more literal, like, oh, no, he's like a supernatural god or some shit. Um, so that stuff doesn't really work for me. But, like, just on the level of a horror movie, like, a you know, a kind of, you know, pulpy slasher movie with, with above-average performances from Jamie Lee Curtis and, like, some cool directing and, and stuff like that, it is a fun movie. Like, I, have a, I had a good time with it. Uh, Hoff? Yeah, I think this movie has really strong beginning and ending. I think the middle is kind of slow and boring, unfortunately. But I think it does a good job of recreating like the filmmaking style of the first movie in a way that you don't really get with any of the other sequels. Totally. It is yeah. the only one that... Like, I mean, and it's all Rick Rosenthal talks about on the commentary and the documentary is just, this was the assignment. I wanted to make a movie that looked like you could feasibly turn it on after the first one and it would seem like it was the same thing. And I think on that level, like, he nailed the assignment. Like, he did do that. And, like, that's impressive considering he's not John Carpenter. You know what I mean? Like, John Carpenter's a very good director. Yeah, especially considering that Rick Rosenthal came back like six movies later and made one that was like, one that like couldn't be ones. further from the feel of the yeah. original. Yeah, he did Resurrection if you were unaware, Jesse. Yes, I was looking him up after this actually because I was curious what else he had done because I was like, well, you know, at, at, at minimum, this is like a pretty efficiently directed, you know, tightly, relatively tight. I think, I think Coffee Right goes a little slack in the middle, but it's like pretty tightly assembled, like, well well done piece of horror movie so i was wondering if he uh, had gone on to do some other like pretty good horror b movies and the answer was oh he directed the ill-regarded halloween resurrection which i have not seen oh you're Yet. in for a treat man i'm <laughs> i'm excited to talk about those again soft spot because uh resurrection may have been the first one i saw in theaters uh-huh. and i vividly remember sneaking into it with friends <laughs> like my parents didn't even take us to that one they were like you're on your own um john carpenter has no sense of humor about this shit or i guess i don't know if that's the right way to say it basically he doesn't care about this and in his mind donald pleasance and michael myers were dead at the end of this movie like if i'm trying to find the quote where he basically says the shape is dead pleasance character is dead too unfortunately when asked in a 1982 interview what happened to michael myers and loomis that's what he flatly said um <laughs> He also and that I think could not be clearer at the yeah. end of the film. I mean, like yeah. I think people sort of you could say they expected people would have kind of forgotten seven years later in Halloween four, but the fact that they try to be like, Yeah, Loomis got burned a little bit, but he's fine. <laughs> when you watch the end of this movie is insane. Like he's yeah. he, he doesn't even have a skeleton anymore. Yeah, he's fully <laughs> obliterated at the end, more so than Tremor. Yeah. Ben Tremor, whatever his name is. Um, I've never, I mean, I think a good defund the police video would just be the, the loop of the cop running into Ben Trainer. <laughs> just put Haddonfield police answer for this. Yeah. You they motherfucker. Fucked, yeah. Well, then some videos of, uh, of them being al like them allowing Loomis to drive their investigation of everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there was, I'm trying to find more funny quotes from Carpenter. Uh, he basically said about the ghost directing some sequences. That's a long, long story. That was a project I got involved in as a result of several different kinds of pressure. I had no influence over the direction of the film. I had influence in the post-production. I saw a rough cut of Halloween 2, and it just wasn't scary. It was about as scary as Quincy. So we had to do some post-production work to bring it to at least up to par with competition. 
So that's what he said. And Rosenthal was not pleased with the changes. He reportedly complained that Carpenter ruined my carefully placed, paced film. Uh, and regardless, many of the graphic scenes contain elements not seen in the film. Uh, Roger Ebert claims this movie has the first close-up I can remember of a hypodermic needle being inserted into an eyeball. Um, <laughs> they haven't fact-checked that claim. I'm not sure. But uh, another fun fact learned on the commentary, uncredited first role of uh, Dana Carvey. Dana Carvey yes. Is, yes. An, Carvey is an assistant to like a news anchor in this movie or something. He like is in a puffy blue vest and he's on camera for a second, but he's just just no lines. He's there. He's yeah. in there. He doesn't even get a swing in. Yeah, does not get a <laughs> swing in. Um, a lot of pan and glide shots, as I mentioned, because they were, uh, you know, emulating my man Carpenter. Uh, Dick Warlock also worked on Friday the 13th 5, A New Beginning. Um, which is interesting. Uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to see if there's any more. Uh, there's a guy named Tom Morgan, I believe, is the guy who's played Scream, Leatherface, Michael, and Freddy, and Jason. Is that the right guy? <laughs> I think Dick Warlock shouted him out. I'm not sure. Um, blah, blah, blah. Always. Oh, I just want to talk about the guy ambiguously dying by hitting his head on the floor. That's really a kill that they kept in the movie. Like, they could have, they even brought him back for a second. Like, uh oh, he's back. Look, he's not dead yet. And him dying is just falling again on the horn. Like, it's so, it's so <laughs> lackluster. I just can't believe that character doesn't get a real kill. He slips on blood and hits his head and dies of like a brain contusion. <laughs> so silly. He also, he also, him falling on the steering wheel, I don't know if you guys are Simpsons guys, but the uh, it, it's it's wonderfully, I mean, this is predates this, obviously, but it, it's wonderfully reminiscent of uh, a feverish Homer Simpson shouting, Duff Gardens, hurrah, and <laughs> passing out on his steering wheel. Yeah. So I appreciated that, uh, <laughs> even though it's not as grand a death. No. Uh, Dick Whitlock famously drove Herbie in Herbie Rides Again, and, <laughs> and Herbie famously. goes to Monte Carlo. <laughs> he says so he when was... are you covering the herbie franchise yeah. <laughs> that's the behind the paywall on the patreon I've only... <laughs> i'll tell you i've only seen herbie goes bananas so i can't even you know I'm no i've only seen the one written by tom lennon with Len... <laughs> with Lindsay lohan in it ah f fully loaded yes. ah yes uh he was talking about how stunt people never get credit for stuff and he said i never got credit for anything i did at disney including herbie and he said he worked on the original love bug as well um uh, he said the monetary rewards are still coming into this day. He talked about he toured the States on his motorcycle, which he then traded in for a sports car, and that he used to have horses, but he's too old for the horses now, and he got rid of his horses. So that's a Dick Whitlock check-in. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I have anything else to say on this movie. I think it's interesting that this movie was edited by somebody, and then Skip Schoolnick simultaneously edited a different version, and... During this editing process, Carpenter realized, like, the plot hole and added that scene. Like, it's so weird. There really were a lot of cooks in this kitchen, but the movie ended up being pretty good despite that fact, which is, like, not the case, generally speaking. Um, I think this movie had a hilarious tagline. First movie's tagline, the night he came home. This tagline, more of the night he came home. <laughs> yeah, and that's what you get. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, it's not, they can't be accused of false advertising. Yeah, it's not like there's like an, another night. Nope, same night. It's still the same <laughs> night he came home. He's still around. He's He found the hospital. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see. Halloween 2 was a box office success, becoming the second highest grossing horror film of 1981 behind An American Werewolf in London. Other movies in the same year were Friday the 13th Part 2, Omen 3, 
the final conflict. Spoiler alert, it wasn't the final conflict. <laughs> and The Howling. Uh, movie got mixed reviews. Um, oh, Home Media Edition. This is a fun trivia. It was released on DVD as I, or Blu-ray, as I mentioned. I actually have this version, uh, this, the 2011 version. They replaced Universal, removed the credit that said Mushtapa Akkad Presents and replaced it with one in a different font that said Universal, an MCA company, Presents. Oh. And uh, Akkad's son, Malik, called this stunt disgusting. It's a disgrace. Objectively, any horror fan would find this an insult to the man who has done so much to the series. And to come after his tragic death, he's not even around to defend himself. It's classless. I'm talking to Universal now, and they're looking into it. Um, and then fans immediately called for a boycott of the disc and set up a Facebook page. And on November 28, 2011, two months after its release, Universal began sending out emails announcing the revised Blu-ray was now available, and owners of the previous disc can send them their address to receive a replacement. <laughs> so if you are really, if I'm, you know what? I'm mad that Universal is on this movie in a different font. I want to get them to send me the Mustafa Akkad version. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make them do that for me. Yeah, I mean, the font that it's supposed to be is a really cool font. It's that John Carpenter, like, orange yeah, text. Yeah, I mean, how great. are you going to get rid of that? Yeah, yeah, really, really fucked up of them to do that. Uh, highly recommend the... Actually, the Shout Factory disc of this, oddly enough, doesn't have subtitles on any of the discs. It's like, it must be an error. But uh, just shout out anybody at Scream Factory if you're listening. It's a bug. I found a bug. I found an Easter egg. Um, uh, an adaptation of the screenplay was printed as a mass market paperback in 1981 I wish they did that more still I'm all about the mass market paperback um, I prefer when they're novelizations that aren't the screenplay but uh, I, if anybody has the novelization that is not the screenplay of the original Halloween it is rare and hard to find and a lot of money on eBay if you have it let me know maybe I'll buy it I have it do you really? Well, I don't have a physical copy, but I found like a oh, uh, I have the PDF Kindle version well. online. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. I, I, I mean, I do. Isn't the cover like the 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 boo the the ghost? Am I wrong? Yeah. Uh, yeah, with a pumpkin head. I think. Yeah, it's fucking cool. I want that book on my shelf. Um. Anyway, Hoth, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, do you have anything to plug? What's the next uh, public domain horror fest? This episode will probably not come out till next Monday. Okay, well, then the next one will be uh, Not of This Earth. We're going to be showing the 1957 Roger Corman sci-fi movie Not of This Earth on Thursday, October 15th at 9 p.m. Eastern time. If you go to uh, HoffsHorrorFest.com, the link will be there. We're going to have Sydney Clara Brofman, a filmmaker, on as the guest. It's going to be a good time. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. And, Jesse, anything to plug on your end? Uh, you can go to sportsalcohol.com and check out some of our podcasts that are not about horror movies, but are also uh, very nerdy. So please right do on. that. And uh, I forgot what I was going to say, so that's the end of the episode. Uh, we'll be back next week with Halloween 3, Season of the Week. Yeah. All right. Bye. And bring me a dream. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Give him the word that I'm not a rover Then tell him that his lonesome nights are over Say, man, I'm so alone Don't have nobody to call my own Please turn on your magic beam Oh, Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream bum, bum, bum.